Okay, so uh, everybody are very welcome to this morning's webinar. Would you believe this is our last webinar of 2021? Everybody say, oh, we've had a, a really good uptake of webinars and, and a lot of people linking in and, and building our community in relation to the webinar process over, over the year. Um, and then we, we are very hopeful we will kick off again in the new year again with new topics and subjects that we hope will be of interest to you. And in relation to that, Feel free to let us know if there's any particular areas that you're interested in or you'd like to have some discussions on as we move through 2022. Um, but this morning's webinar is about policy procedure development. It's pretty exciting. I, it's a personal favorite of mine. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think we have some good key areas of focus. Now, I would say that generally our policy and procedure um, training activity is a full day of training and it certainly takes up the full day of training but lucky you're getting a really compact version it's the reader's digest version of the policy and procedure training but it's just introducing you to some new ideas in relation to our some some standardized ideas in relation to policy and procedure development um, that may be able to assist you as you go forward okay so we'll kick on from there you know who we are by now. Generally, I think all of you have been in attendance before, but we are the, the leading professional service providers for resident safety, compliance and quality improvement, intelligence and support for a variety of health and social care organizations. So we have backgrounds, uh, a variety of, of healthcare backgrounds within our, our team. Um, and then we also incorporate those um, quality information system specialists who, who have the, the, the software systems and platforms to support the work that we do uh, within services. Um, obviously here, best practice specialist, that's particularly the department that, that I'm reading out on. So that's keeping a finger on, on, on the pulse of all the new requirements and best practice activities uh, that are coming through and will implement, uh, impact on the residential care sector. So why are we here in the first place? Well, certainly when people generally talk about policies and procedures, um, we have some positive and some negative feedback in relation to them. So let's look at what can be some of the, are, are certainly some of the advantages in relation to policy and procedures development and, and their implementation when they are done right. Well, primarily what we're looking for is to standardize the services and care that we provide. So allow, giving us a view on how the day-to-day -day operations should be implemented within, within the services. And it's that standardization of whether I do it or Rosemary does it, if we're involved in the process that we can standardize the application of the process so we can have a standardized outcome in relation to it. We're looking to promote evidence-based best practice. Within our policies and procedures, we don't want to just have the bare minimum. We want to incorporate best practice as it comes through and as it is uh, relevant to our sector and ensure that we can bring our services through that continuous improvement and development. And we see that in, in the guidance that comes through from HICO all the time about the continual driving for continuous improvement. So we don't want things to become stale all our policies and procedures have to be live documents that are continually updating and reflective of the changing practice. As we all know, our services are continually changing and we want our policies to reflect that. We want to reduce that variation. So obviously by standardizing, we're going to re reduce variation and reduce the risk related to variation in the application of our services. So we want to make sure that our policy and procedures are going to be robust enough to be able to remove that element of variation while supporting um, 
the, the individual needs of our residents as we provide our services. Within the policy and procedure, it is imperative that the residents are central to the process. And this is it also it is, is important for how we engage stakeholders in our policy and procedure development, which we're going to talk about in a little while. But all the time we're writing our policies and procedures, we need to make sure that the resident is central, that it's not just about having a policy and procedure that has all of the requirements written out and that we can show HICWA and say, look, we have it here. It's about taking those requirements, of course, but looking at our personalized central processes that put our residents first and make sure that they are the central focus of those documents. We want to avoid duplication. In, in many cases, when we're doing policy and procedure training and when we're doing process mapping that relates to how, so process mapping, talking about what are the step-by-steps that people go through, it's amazing to say, oh, well, I don't do it that way. I do it this way. So, oh, no, no, well, I would always do it this way. So when we engage people in the process, we can see that there's a certain level of confusion, variation, and duplication. So we want to streamline our process and make sure that they're very clean and clear for the people that are implementing it. We want to provide clarity on the approach so everybody, again, knows exactly who's responsible for what and how they're to implement the process what records are to be taken and what detail comes from that. As I said, those clarity regarding responsibilities and obviously then those regulatory requirements are very important at the end of the day. When we do have regulatory bodies, we need to make sure that we have robust, comprehensive policies and procedures that give that, as I call it, the warm, fuzzy feeling uh, for regulatory authorities that they know we are actively engaged with our policy and procedure process and they're reflective of best practice and what we're actually implementing on site. What we see in many, in many cases, certain facilities, you might have a fabulous set of policies and procedures that are in no way implemented on the floor or else you, you can have very weak policies and procedures but really good care and practice on the floor. So what we need to do is try and combine the two rights uh, in relation to it. We want to provide guidance in decision-making um, and the line management structure. It's really important in our policies and procedures that we're considerate it's not just if everything goes tickety-boo and perfect, but what do we do when something goes wrong? So we need to be considerate of the risks associated. What can possibly go wrong within these processes? And if there is a possibility that there is a risk there, how are we going to address it? Who do I need to communicate it to? What is my response going to be? So everything is not always going to just run beautifully. So we need to be considerate of that when we write those policies. I said involving stakeholders is really important for that comprehensive approach and in previous times it was often a case that we had one person writing the policies and procedures and it's impossible for that individual to really have the nuances of all the inputs that are required for a policy and procedure and that's why we do uh, within HCI we, we complete a lot of process mapping where we bring the right people around the table and just start to discuss the processes in bite-sized chunks and really get a feel for what's important, what's required, and, and get a general understanding for the process. And that's the only way we can build those comprehensive and robust policies and procedures by getting that involvement. And that may, may well include the residents uh, that, that, I mean, they're, they're the people that are receiving um, these, these processes on a day-to-day -day basis. So to get their input and see what is important to them. And certainly really important to have people involved that are implementing the process. These are the people that do that job all day, every day, day in, day out. So it's really important that we get their input when we're developing the policies and procedures and it's not just left at a very top level. 
Um, obviously, our policies and procedures, if they're good enough, they're going to facilitate our staff induction. They're going to support our education and training. So these are going to be the models that we're going to use to be able to engage our staff and make sure that they have the skills and competencies um, to, to work within our service. As I said, those points of risk are really, uh, really important. And it's only when we start to really lay out our processes and our flowcharts that we say, where are those points of risk and where can something go wrong? And obviously those policies and procedures are going to form the basis with our regulation for audit and evaluation. And from that, where we can identify gaps and drive continuous improvement. So they have an incredibly important role uh, within, within our services. Now we see all the time there are challenges and I suppose the primary one is the time that's taken. And it is incredibly, um, uh, demanding in relation to the times, continually drawing out and saying what is required, what's important, how are we going to get this incorporated, how are we going to communicate this to our staff, it is, it, it, it's certainly a very um, demanding part of the quality management system. We're not sure what to put into it, what should it look like, how are we going to control it, what is evidence-based, where do I look for, where, where do I look to to try and get that kind of information. Those documents don't mean anything to me. I don't have any, you know, I just do my job. Their documents that are on a server or in a folder somewhere, uh, they really have no impact on me. Uh, they have no benefit for the patients. They're just paperwork for paperwork's sake, and they don't reflect our current practice. So these are the type of challenges that we see where policies and procedures start to fall down or the process that's implemented for managing those policies and procedures isn't sufficiently robust enough. So let's have a look at some of the specific requirements and I'm not going to delay long on these because we have a lot of content to cover. You all at this stage know what are the requirements in relation to policies and procedures within SI 415. They say that you have to have adopt and implement policies and procedures as set out in Schedule 5. We'll have a quick look at, as we know, you need an awful lot more policies and procedures than the ones that are mandated in Schedule 5. Um, they want to make sure that your policies are available to staff and that they're they are reviewed on an ongoing basis at intervals not exceeding three years. So again, pretty high level requirements here. You're not getting overwhelmed there, but as we know, it's much bigger once we peel back the layers. Those schedule five policies are said they're here, but the reality of it is if we start looking at the national standards just for the older people's services, but then if we look at the national standards for IPC, which are now applicable, that requirement for policies and procedures is much, much broader than just the schedule five ones. Uh, within the standards themselves, they talk about the, the policies they look for nutrition, hydration, abuse, risk management, incident management, infection control, medication management. And again, you know, we talk about policies and procedures for medication management. If right is right, and we look at the breakout of that, that is an enormous bunch of individual policies and procedures. If we talk about controlled meds, covert uh, medication, self-administration, medication reconciliation, there is no way one policy can, can, can certainly cover all of the requirements in relation to that. So it does mushroom out into a lot of content in relation to it. So if we look then at the, the HICWA findings, so what have HICWA found when they've gone out or what, you know, what are they bringing to the fore in relation to issues for policies and procedures? 
In one inspection, Schedule 5 policies were not signed off as being read by staff or were they approved by the PIC and registered providers. So there was obviously confusion in relation to roles and responsibilities. And then that lack of communication, filtering it down onto the application floor. Policies were not reviewed or updated in the last three years in line with regs. So again, really the reality of it is policies and procedures should be updated far more often than three years. But if we have a set of policies that weren't reviewed within that period, then again, it's a case where you know, somebody may have come in, created a lovely set of policies and procedures, and they just die a death and there's no live versions on the, on the floor. The designated centre relied on national policies, and these were required to be adapted locally to provide clear guidance to staff of the specific requirements in the designated centre. So instead of uh, the service pulling down the national policies uh, and personalising them within their own system, they were just utilizing the national policies. And as, as we all know, there isn't, there's certainly not enough specifics in those national policy that would guide um, a, an individual service in their application. So uh, it's very important that when we have, when we know those best practice and requirements that we draw them down and personalize them uh, for our own services. Policies and procedures required on Schedule 5 were in the process of being updated. However, this process has not been completed. In many cases, we see policies and procedures that are continually in draft. Oh, that's in draft. It's under review. They never actually make it uh, out onto the floor. So it's important that when we engage in that revision process, that it's completed in a timely manner. Some new employee staff did not receive training or refresher training on the policies and procedures in residential care. So didn't get off the blocks in relation to the training, but we see much more often that where updates to policies and procedures are not given, uh, that the, the training focus is not applied with them so that people are working really to re previous revisions and, and not to the most uh, current uh, version. The residential home is not following their own policy on safeguarding, instant reporting and care planning. So as I said, again, beautiful policies and procedures, all the content in the world but not being implemented on the floor. And that's something that we certainly look at within HCI in development policy and procedure. There's no point in having a 50 page policy and procedure if there's no real method of application on the floor. And um, the policies and procedures that I would recommend is that you develop them in what we would call bite-sized chunks. Like for example, with that medication management, if you were to cover everything that was required, you would have a, a policy and procedure well over 50 pages. And that is not amenable. It's not manageable uh, from, from a review perspective, from a training perspective, from an engagement perspective. You want to try and make your policies and procedures, uh, the scope of each of them to be in a manageable amount so that we can have a, a much better understanding and approach because it can become very overwhelming if the policies and procedures are trying to cover too much detail. Policies were not consistently implemented in practice. For example, policies on end of life, restraint, recruitment, and staff training were not implemented in full. So again, uh, not getting the, the specific details of, of the, the policies and procedures out on the floor. And then the policies were not reflective of requirements or best practice. Well, that's, that's standard fare. We, ha we have to be able to engage past that. So we know some of the problems that HICWA have seen in relation to policies and procedures. So how are we going to try and, 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 and make our policies and procedures, our approach to development a little bit better? 
I wanted to bring up this, this diagram. This came from the HC National Framework for Developing Policies, Procedures, Protocols, and Guidelines. This document came out in 2016. And if I'm honest, there's an awful lot of detail in it. And in relation to uh, uh, residential services, it's not wholly applicable. It's a lot, uh, you know, it is is more focused on the acute care sector. And it can be quite off-putting because of the le level of detail that it's demanding. But I do think there's a lot of good basis in relation to the approach and the principles that are there. So I just wanted to use that as just some of the areas to discuss and some of the key, the key points uh, to keep an eye on in relation to it. So this is really about that cycle and having this cycle really considered as part of your document control process. So what, when we talk about initiation, the very first kickoff where we, where we have identified, okay, we're going to need a policy and procedure in relation to this, what do we need to consider? Well, obviously, the number one thing that we want to look at is the legislative and the regulatory requirements. So what, from a, what are we mandated to have incorporated within that particular process? So from that, then we need to look at the clarification of the process. So the scope of that, what are we trying to encompass within this? So what are we trying to address within the process? And within that, what are the needs of the residents? And as I said, that has to be central to our focus all of the time in relation to our policy and procedure development. How is this going to address the needs of our residents and how are we going to ensure that they're central? Also, it's important that we have policies and procedures, as I said, for any commonly used processes. So if there's a commonality to the process, it's important that we have policies and procedures there to, to, to address it. Um, if it has what we would say in relation to policy and procedures, if it impacts on the quality and safety of the service that you're providing, then you should have a policy and procedure to manage it. As I said, talk about schedule five and some of the particular requirements from the standards, but for us, Anything that impacts on the quality and safety of the service that you're providing should have a controlled policy and procedure uh, relating to it. Those areas of potential risk. So if I have, if there is a particular area that has thrown out um, repetitive incidents, complaints, um, or you know, we've identified on the risk register, again, a very robust, comprehensive policy and procedure is going to be required to address it, as said there for the incidents and, and non-performances. Then the high risk, high volume, high cost, any of those uh, where we have an impact in relation to cost base, a high volume or throughput, are again high risk areas. Again, a robust policy and procedure is going to be required. So when we talk about that, in relation to uh, where do we need a policy and procedure, all of these things need to be considered. So it's not just about the legislation, it's also about what are the needs of our residents and do we have the process in place to, to address those, what are our common processes and what are our high risk areas that are going to require, um, uh, they're going to require a, a detailed policy and procedure. Okay, stage two. So we've had the initiation. We know we need a policy and procedure in a particular area. So then how are we going to go about actually developing uh, the policy? First of all, I'd recommend that you have a standardized template and I'm sure all of you do have this. It should incorporate titles, reference numbers and revisions. We'll talk about doc control in a little while. It should clearly outline upfront the responsibilities of the particular um, uh, individuals or titles. Um, it should have the, the detail of the procedure. So that should incorporate a flow chart, if at all possible, for clarity, and then the specifics of how we implement that. 
It should have a section for education and training, audit and evaluation, records and references. So at a minimum, they should be our headings that are detailed within your templates. So let's look at each of these. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about each of these and what should be involved in it in relation to content. When we talk about the policy, and it's a policy and procedure, so what is a policy? It's a written operational statement of intended outcomes to guide staff, oh, I'm sorry, to guide staff um, in relation to particular circumstances. So it is saying, this is the way we do business. This is how we are going to implement, and this is going to be the outcome. So it is a statement of intent. Our procedure then is a written set of instructions that describe the approved steps to be taken to fulfill a policy. So it's about taking that policy, breaking it out and see how we're going to achieve that policy through step-by-step -step implementation. So the policy is the what and the why. However, it does not inform exactly how something is done. The procedure is the how. Okay, so that's how we, we, we break it out in relation to it. When we talk about definitions, and it's important to outline the definitions up front, because, you know, generally when we talk about writing policy and procedure, we should be able to write the policy and procedure in a way that it is very clear to anybody who reads the policy, be it their resident or a family member or a member of staff, very clear what this policy and procedure is about, and it shouldn't be filled with that technical jargon, if not required, that it makes it amenable to as many people as possible. So we want at the outset all definitions and ambiguous terms to be defined. The definitions need to be clear and concise. And if all possible, we want to reference all definitions using relevant sources. So when we're using our definitions, you know, try and utilize your HICWA standards for if, where they have the glossary, utilize that. And if we use one if we in one policy and procedure, if we utilize one reference source for a particular word, try and utilize that throughout all your policies and procedures. So having a consistency in the definitions that you're using throughout, as I said, those because we want to try and make sure that our policies and procedures are a web, as I would call it, they are interconnected and they're not just individual standalone documents. Responsibilities, then again. From our, from our uh, perspective, we think it's very important at the outset to detail the specific responsibilities that are coming up within the process. So these should be defined upfront and the responsibilities allocated must be reflective of the staff seniority and capabilities. So when we're writing the policies and procedures, it's really important that we allocate responsibilities to the individuals who have the uh, the skills the capability and even the supernumerary capacity to be able to fulfill those roles um, in many cases the regulatory requirements will dictate who is responsible for what but within the, the the lower level requirements we need to make sure that the responsibilities that we're allocating are appropriate uh, to their roles and responsibilities and we need to think about those job descriptions are they going to support uh, the responsibilities that we're allocating in relation to each process. So, and if we allocate responsibilities up front, we need to make sure that those responsibilities are reflective throughout the process. So we want to make sure that there's a match throughout. The procedure content then, and this is where, where all of the, the, the real belt and braces come in and all of our detail. And I'm really sorry that, that keeps flicking. I don't know why it does. But so the procedure is sub supplementing the policy. We know that. So a procedure is how, how things are done. It is action orientated. So we want it to 
to, to be specific on the step-by-step -step instructions and sequence of how those steps are implemented. So what will be done, when, by whom, and what records must be kept. And again, what I'd like to you know, continually refer back to is involvement of the stakeholders, because what we think maybe within the senior management team is the way things are done is not always the way that they're done on the floor. So we need to make sure that we have overall communications in relation to that. The process flow. Okay, so and we're talking about this is really about a flow chart. Now, some policies and procedures lend themselves to flow charts, where some of them not so much. So, but generally, what we want to try and do within a flow chart and force ourselves to be able to draw out a flow chart, we're talking about a process, is that we have clarity on the step by step what happens next and then and then. And where is the decision point where something is a yes or a no? and how we're going to manage that process. So it's really about clarity. Now, this is just, you know, it's funny, uh, by the way, but this is just the type of when we talk about the flowcharts, but this one is in relation to buying shoes, one of my favorite things. So we want the shoes, we go to town, we select the shop, we enter the shop, we select the shoes, we try them on. Do we buy the shoes at decision point, yes or no? And then we either buy the shoes or we go back up to the beginning. So it is that cyclical flow, but it is really important to have those decision points that will drive whether something goes to it, yes or no. Very, very rarely there's just going to be a straight line down through your process flow where it's step by step. So the who is the shopper and the assistant, the resources, it might be the car or the money. The risk is that they don't have any shoes in my size or I don't like the shoes. And why is it this way? Well, would it be better off? Would we be better off not do, going to town at all and just buying them on the internet? So when we're thinking about processes, we have to also think of just because we've all done, always done it this way doesn't mean it's the way that we should do it going forward. Um, you know, and we have to be considerate and questioning of that when we're developing our policies and procedures. Is there a better way? Is there a cleaner way? I said, is there repetition? Is there inconsistencies? What are the variations and what are the risks associated with it? So all of these questions, this is very flippant, but it does raise those continual questions that we have to be asking when we're uh, developing our policies and procedures. Again, these are just some of the flowchart symbols. I'm sure you've all seen them before. When we talk about education and training, then, you know, when we're developing our policies and procedures, we have to be very cognizant of what education and training requirements are we going to have to demand from that? How are we going to ensure that they're part of the induction training? Or is it a mandatory training? Is it an ongoing training requirement? What are the level and skills required of the individuals that are going to be implementing this process? How often do we need to train? Who's going to be capable of providing the training? Is this training we can do in-house for this process or are we going to have to look at external bodies to come in to support us? Do the residents require education or communication on this procedure? And this is uh, very uh, relevant in relation to the IPC where we're looking at involving uh, residents in education training on IPC to ensure that they're engaged in the process uh, on an ongoing basis. If we do provide the training, how are we going to make sure it's effective? If it's a, a complicated process or a more clinical-based process, how are we going to ensure it's effective? Are we going to have to have supervision requirements um, in, in relation to it? So again, all of these considerations need to be thought of when we're writing our policy. How are we going to handle the training on updates or revisions to the policy? And how are we going to capture the learnings from processes if things go wrong? So again, 
within our pot saving procedure, how are we going to take those outputs and feed them back into our quality management system to ensure that they're integrated into our learning process and drive our continuous improvement on an ongoing basis. Audit and evaluation then. Uh, the service must audit policies and procedures. Obviously, you all are aware of that the ongoing monitoring requirements that are there. Um, so we need to make sure that we know what are the key points from the flowchart that need to be audited and then considered of aud whether audit tools are going to be required to support that process. Who's going to be responsible for completing that audit? And that's important that we detail that kind of information within the policy in within each individual policies and procedure. Who will, who will complete the audit and what will be done with those audit findings? Will they be fed back into senior management or to staff? So very important for each policy and procedure that that's clarified, that we have the learnings uh, in relation to it. And we also have to be considered from each of those processes, is there outputs from that process? Are there outputs from that process that are going to need to be incorporated into our annual review of the quality and safety of the service provided? Because generally, for any of those key policies and procedures, and particularly for those related to Schedule 5, there's going to need to be some output of data or information that we can take from our processes and feed into our annual review so that we can consider how well we're doing in relation to each of those processes. Generally, I would have a section for records, which references all of the records that are required as part of your policy and procedure. And that provides general clarity in relation to, to the linkages in many cases within policies and procedures and helps to prioritize areas for audit. References then, again, all references that you use in the policy should be listed. We need to use a standardized referencing format. And generally that's up to yourself and how you want to uh, implement that uh, with HICWA 2016 might be referenced within the content of the policy and then when we get to the references section we have a more detailed uh, information about the, the reference and, and type of that. It's really important that those references are kept up to date. In many cases we look at policies and procedures and there's references that are no longer utilised within the policy, we want to get rid of those, but obviously if we're monitoring and, and updating our policies on, on an ongoing basis we need to make sure that these are kept up to date. For example, the HSE, HPSE guidelines in relation to um, COVID-19, which have now been extended to incorporate influenza. I mean, they're updated so, so frequently um, and, and it's really important um, that they're kept up to date. And, and when regulatory authorities come in and they look at our revision, our, our references, it's very clear to them very quickly of how up to date um, our policies are and, and procedures are being maintained. When we talk about language and format, it's really important, if we can at all, to keep the language simple and the sentences short. And what I mean by that, again, to make sure that our policies and procedures are as amenable and accessible to people, um, if, if at all possible. Again, manage the terminology and keep the tenses consistent. In many cases, you'll have, we shall do that, or we will do that, or, you know, we, we might do that, or or then it's in the past tense or the present tense, the future tense. We want to try and have a level of consistency throughout the policy and procedure in relation to it. Be, be aware of abbreviations. And if we use them to just give the full detail on, on the first time that they're used, and then we can use them throughout. Use references, obviously use titles and not individual names unless required to do so. So if we have a, a complaints coordinator, we may need to, to name them or whatever is a requirement in relation to it for accessibility. Have standardized formatting, it's pretty obvious, but in relation to Arial 10, 
whatever you decide to use, single spacing, black font, bold headings, just have it consistent uh, in relation to the approach. Use your logo. And obviously within that, it's that personalization of your documentation. And where at all possible, as I said, create those linkages between your policies and procedures, reference out to other documents, uh, where it supports the content of a process. You're not going to be able to incorporate all of the detail you need within every single process, but you can reference out to another policy and procedure that would provide further detail in a particular area. So also something to be considered. Governance and approval then, and we'll move through these pretty quickly. It's really important that you know exactly who's responsible for your policy and procedure development, who's going to be the owner, the reviewer, the author, and who's going to manage it on an ongoing basis. When we talk about communication then and dissemination, how are we going to communicate internally? How are we going to access our staff or our hard to reach groups? And I do think it's important that we consider, you know, uh, in many cases, our, our health and social care professionals are going to need to have access to our policies and procedures, our, our pharmacists, our GPs, how are we going to ensure that they have access to our updated policies and procedures? And then how do we get that acknowledgement by staff? How are we, how can we make sure that our staff know exactly what are the right policies and procedures that they should be using and that they're at the current version? So that's very important also. For implementation, it's about implementing from that training requirements, who's responsible for the rollout and training of those policies and procedures, and how are we going to make sure that they have access only to the most up-to-date versions in relation to it. Monitoring, audit and evaluation, well again, like what we have in our policy and procedure, this is from a broader perspective in relation to doc control. We need to consider those supports and supervision that's required to be provided by staff. What are the additional checks and reviews that need to be implemented for our policies and procedures to ensure that they're, they're correct and in place? And I would say for all your policies and procedures, and if you look at your internal audit schedule, every policy and procedure that you have should be reflected within your audit schedule somewhere. So on an annual basis, at a minimum, every core policy and procedure that you have should be reviewed within one, of your, one or more of your audits. Uh, and that's a very... Um, uh, easy way uh, once it's set up to ensure that those policies are reviewed on an ongoing basis and they're not left for the three years because they're they're part of that audit process. Um, those challenges and tweaks, uh, you know, they're within the, the monitoring and audit and evaluation process is going to throw up issues and it's really important that we act on those findings uh, where they're identified where we have problems with policies and procedures and we drive continuous improvement projects arising from that. When we're developing our KPI set, it's no harm to incorporate one for doc control. Uh, important to have that as a benchmark or a measure on an ongoing basis and that we can incorporate it as part of our data review in relation to it. Revision update has said um, your documents should be reviewed where there is a change in practice or in legislation or where you're requested by the inspector or by your ongoing activities in relation to audit. The document owner generally is responsible for managing the review um, and incidents should be raised where non-conformances are identified. I said that will drive opportunities for improvement. Where pre previously approved documents are obsolete, we need to make sure that we have a control process to remove them, mark them as obsolete and make sure that they're no longer within the system. Uh, however, previous versions must be retained in a control measure so that we can go back on previous uh, versions should there be queries in relation to services being provided 
a number of years ago. Document control, I said, I'm not going to delay on that. I'm sure you all have document control process in place, but this is ensure that you have codes that relate to your documents. Particular documents should, should link to particular codes. We need to have individual numbering allocations, uh, which is sequentially allocated through a master document log and ensure that we have controlled and uncontrolled stamped and electronic records in place. Make sure we have appropriate storage make those obsolete and internal reviews we've talked about. Change management, again, not gonna have a chance to go into this, but change management is particularly uh, where we have a significant change in our uh, in a core process. It's important that we look at the policy and procedure impact. And when we have a change in one process, it very often has knock-on effects on other related processes. Very rare you'll have an update to a policy to a singular policy, because where we have an update in one, generally it'll have a knock-on effect on another. And we need to make sure that we incorporate all aspects of that um, and, and, and make sure that the change is managed on a, on a broader perspective. That is very much a whistle-stop tour of it. What I would like just to flag up the, the party political broadcast is HCI currently provide uh, best practice bundles. We have over 350 uh, uh, evidence-based documents, primarily 140 core policies and procedures um, that are continually monitored on an ongoing basis and updated and kept reflective. Um, so that is something that we work on on an ongoing basis. Um, this is just an example of the list of policies and procedures that we have here, obviously identifying the Schedule 5. And as you can see, there's a significant amount of policies and procedure that are not identified as Schedule 5, but you will be expected to have within uh, your services. So that's just a, an example of, of the type of documents that are there. It is a service that we provide. It's an online service uh, that you can log in, access the policies and procedures that you that, that you wish to, to, to draw down and review it on that basis. And then we update the policies and procedures. As we do that, all of our clients are automatically notified of the changes as they come through. So Rosemary is doing great work in relation to that. And uh, she's certainly the point of contact for anybody who might be interested in accessing uh, those suites of documents that we have available uh, over a 12 month contract. And if any of you are interested, you're more than welcome to, to link in with Rosemary. And uh, just want to say thank you so much for taking the time for joining us today. And for those of you who have joined us throughout the last number of webinars for uh, 2021, we look forward to seeing you all again in 2022 for more excitement, delightment and knowledge, hopefully, as we move into 2022. Okay. Thank you very much, everybody.